From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. You should all be fired from your day jobs because if your employers knew that you were more inefficient than the, than the DMV, you would be replaced in a heartbeat. I literally just finished a conference call because I'm having to multitask to be here to, to address you guys. You're a bunch of cowards hiding behind our children as an excuse for keeping schools closed. You think you're some sort of martyrs because of the decisions you're making when the statistics do not lie that the vast majority of the population is not at risk from this virus. The garbage workers who pick up my freaking trash risk their lives every day more than anyone in this school system. Figure it out or get off the podium because you know what? There are people like me and a lot of other people out there who will gladly take your seat and figure it out. If you haven't already heard that clip from a recent Loudoun County, Virginia school board meeting, that's Brandon Michonne. Michonne has a five and eight-year-old in Loudoun County Public Schools. And as a fellow parent in his district, it's not hard at all for me to understand his outrage. My eight-year-old was diagnosed with dyslexia right before school shut down last March. Today's teaching strategies have helped students with dyslexia learn to read fluently and actually thrive academically. But that's if they're going to school. After a year out of the classroom, an average day of virtual learning for my son includes crying, yelling, heartbreaking expressions of self-doubt, depression, and hopelessness. And from talking to teachers, nurses, and parents around my community, I know we're not alone. Doctors warned us that this would happen if schools stayed closed. The CDC is reporting a staggering 24% increase in mental health-related emergency room visits for children ages 5 to 11 and a 31% increase in ages 12 to 17. It's a fact, no matter which party you support, that school lockdowns yield no benefit to society. COVID-19 rates are essentially identical between countries with and without in-person classroom learning. Yet some of the largest school districts in the U.S. are still only offering online instruction. And that's despite reports of losing contact with thousands of students from Philadelphia to Houston to Los Angeles. Thankfully, the CDC is now recommending that schools open, but with precautions in place. They're even saying that teachers don't have to be vaccinated in order to go back. So if parents want to reopen, teachers want to reopen, and now the CDC and the White House want schools to reopen, what is the holdup? Teachers unions. This week, Jonathan Butcher, Heritage's Will Skillman Fellow in Education, is going to explain what the unions want, how they're holding things up, and what America's parents can do about it. Our conversation after this short break. Americans use firearms to defend themselves between 500,000 and 2 million times every year. 
But God forbid that my mother is ever faced with a scenario where she has to stop a threat to her life. But if she is, I hope politicians protected by professional armed security didn't strip her of the right to use the firearm she can handle most competently. To watch the rest of Heritage Expert Amy Swear's testimony on assault weapons before the House Judiciary Committee, head to the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. There you'll find talks, events, and documentaries backed with the reputation of the nation's most broadly supported public policy research institute. Start watching now at heritage.org YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. Jonathan, thanks so much for chatting with us today. So I've talked to teachers, and most of them want to go back. And I know most of parents want their kids back. And the CDC says it's safe to try to go back to school with precautions in place. So what's the holdup? Well, especially in large school districts, it's teachers unions. And they're getting that from their national headquarters. The AFT and the NEA have both said that teachers do not have to go back if they don't feel like it's safe and that those national organizations will uh, back them up if that's the choice they make. In places like Chicago, it's playing out uh, as we speak. There, the teacher union is in a standoff and has been with the school district and the mayor for several weeks now. In fact, they were expecting to reopen schools uh, on Monday, and they were expecting at least some kids to go back. And then, you know, as, as early as the weekend, they were calling that the union was going to tell teachers to stay home, and they did. So we're looking at potentially a strike in one of the largest school districts in the U.S. right now. Wow. What is it that the unions want in order to make the, you know, or or what do the teachers want that they're telling the unions to request for them in order to feel safe? It's hard to distinguish what exactly the teachers individually are looking for, because the only voices that we can hear right now are the unions. They're the ones making the headlines. The unions are demanding all of the same sort of safety measures that we've been talking about for the past year during the pandemic, right? Masks, washing of hands, and various other safety measures. But the district in Chicago, for example, has said that they've used both, they've used the resources that they've been given to, to do those things and to buy the materials that they need to make it safe for teachers to come back. So it's difficult to say. I mean, I, I think one one possible explanation by uh, from an insider who who looks at unions all the time is that unions just don't want to be on the hot seat if they say that teachers can go back and then perhaps there's an outbreak that the unions don't want to be blamed for what what may or may not happen. I think that that's giving the unions a lot of credit for being reasonable because in truth, right, over the past year, unions have, Uh, demanded things like rent forgiveness and mortgage payments, uh, defunding of police, both inside and outside of school. They've used this opportunity to advocate for political causes that are well outside of K-12. So for someone, like you said, who understands a lot about unions, for someone like me who's not part of a union, how 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 do the unions have a direct effect? How does this work? So the unions have a collective bargaining agreement in places like Illinois, like Chicago, right? They have an agreement with the district about what their um, the, the rules over their uh, workplace environment is going to be. In fact, they just had a bargaining agreement that was renewed just a few years ago, which, by the way, made strikes illegal in that bargaining agreement. 
Um, and so when the union head office tells teachers that they need to stay home until the union makes an agreement with the district, then that's what that's what happens. That's what follows. Hmm. And so, you know, the troubling thing is that it's not it, it is happening in Chicago, but it's not just Chicago. Right. The the headquarters from, again, the national offices, uh, the AFT and the NEA uh, have both been supportive of the idea that that local chapters don't have to say that teachers can go back. And I would add here that Catholic schools in Chicago, where they enroll some 20,000 students across the city, they've been open to in-person learning since the fall. Right. But I mean, that addresses another question where it's it's not exactly fair that uh, kids who can go to private schools get that education, where the kids who have to, you know, their taxpayer dollars go to public schools and they're not able to access that. Without question. And it makes it even worse that these agreements that I was talking about, they have blocked the growth of charter schools in Chicago, as well as in L.A. The unions in both of those cities have effectively created caps or limits on the creation of new charter schools in those cities. And of course, charter schools serve more minority students as a percent and more low-income students as a percent than the traditional K-12 system. So exactly the kinds of solutions that we need for these children who may not have had any formal learning since last March, right? The effective solutions for them have been choked off by these teacher unions. So in conclusion, what can we do? How do we get our schools to open back up? Well, we're coming off of the annual celebration of National School Choice Week. That was last week. And that's a great reminder of what is very much a reality for policymakers and parents. This is not just a policy solution. We're talking about a lifestyle that uh, families are trying to preserve today with parents trying to get to work, providing uh, and finding adequate care for their children, uh, not to mention the future educational goals for you know their students. So um, I think the ability to um, not only uh, look for either private schools or charter schools if they're available to families, but also the creation of learning pods, which has been in the headlines still, um, especially since last summer, where parents are taking their kids out of school, uh, meeting with um, either their neighbors or friends of uh, friends of their children in small groups to continue some form of academic program. And one survey that just came out last week estimates that perhaps three million students are in learning pods over the course of the wow, pandemic wow. or have been. So this this is not uh, this is a, a non-trivial number today. And uh, the number of parents who say that they are ready to homeschool has also skyrocketed over the past six to nine months. Jonathan, thank you so much for your insight. We really appreciate it. And that's it for this week's episode. I want to give a special thanks to all the teachers out there who are giving it their all. I know my children's teachers are, and I need them to know that I am so incredibly grateful for them. I'm going to link to Jonathan's most recent op-ed on this topic in our show notes. Please help conservative podcasts by sharing this episode or your other favorite episodes of Heritage Explains with a friend. You can find us on just about all podcast platforms, but you can also listen to this episode on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Tim's up next week. We'll see you then.
Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Descher, with editing by John Pop.